last week or two weeks ago, I had asked you to read. Who has read the book of Ephesus or the book of Ephesians? Recently, I mean in the last week. Okay, so you had an extra week. So I'm going to read it with you today. But I'm going to read it in a little bit of a different way. Is that okay? You know, the scripture says, cursed is the one who adds or takes anything away from this book. Well, I believe that I'm going to be able to do that without being cursed. <laughs> I'm going to add a few words of clarification to some of the scriptures that Paul has written. Because when he writes it, uh, he writes it with an audience in mind, with his understanding. But when we read it 2,000 later, 2,000 years later, neither are we that audience, or neither are we aware of who that audience was when he wrote it, nor do we really fully grasp his perspective in his writing. Does that make sense? So I'm not trying to change the Word of God. I'm not trying to add to the Word of God. I'm simply trying to expand or, or expose the Word of God for us to understand a principle that is there that Paul is writing with that lens that he's, uh, he's seeing things with, his worldview. So last week, or last week that I spoke to you, uh, was the week before Wanda was with us last week and she shared about a key word that the Lord had been speaking to her. Anybody remember what that word was? Huh? Huh? Say it louder. Kindness. Kindness. Because the mic has to pick you up so that the people at home can hear you. Okay, say it one more time. Kindness. kindness. Okay. And what did she tell us about the word kindness? I know you can't answer all of that. But she did tell us that it was the character of God because it was the goodness and the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And it's also what love is. If you remember, love is patient, love is kind. So it's the character and the nature of God to be kind. And he's made us in our image. He didn't say it. She didn't say all of that. But that's how I'm processing it. But she gave us examples of the need to be kind to people around us. Not just to each other, but she even actually underlined and stressed being kind to our enemies. Okay, that's all wonderful. A couple weeks ago when I shared with you about the cultural systems of society, I said that there are three main cultural systems that existed in the time of Jesus and actually exist to this day. And the first one is, oh, you can't see that. Come on, guys, you got to tell me these things. Okay. First one is government. We're all under some kind of governmental authority. And that was actually instituted by God right at the time of the flood. He told Noah that there's going to be some rules and there's going to be some government and there's going to be some caring of people and caring of property. And he put all that into place. Then there's the system of economy, the cultural system or the societal system of economy. And there's a balance of those that have and those that don't. There's an economy. And we believe that economy governs us in how we function and how we think. 
And then there is religion. And these are sort of the overriding systems that existed at the time of Jesus. And I said that the government at the time of Jesus was Rome. The economy was basically business. Whoever had business, whoever had a large farm, whoever had a large number of cattle or sheep was in a better life state than those that didn't. As a matter of fact, there were beggars at the time of Jesus and they were the poor. And Jesus made a comment to his disciples when somebody said, look at the waste of this alabaster jar that was broken. It could have been sold and fed the poor. So they had poor people. So Jesus responded, the poor you'll always have with you. But what she did was something different. Does that mean that Jesus is insensitive to the poor? Not at all. He spoke so much in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he spoke about how blessed the poor are and how difficult it is for the rich. Now, is he against the rich? Not at all. So he's neither against the poor nor against the rich. He has a different economy in mind, and it's an it's a economy that's sort of upside down from the economy that we think. When a rich person comes into a room, they expect honor. They expect recognition of their status. Have you ever gone shopping and worn bad shoes, bad clothes, and gone to an expensive type of store? Anybody? Yeah. How do they treat you? Like you're not going to be buying anything. But if you go in wearing, you know, nice clothes, an expensive pair of shoes, you're holding a nice purse if you're a lady, and you go into that same store, they buzz around you like you're the queen. <laughs> Amen? Yeah. Right. Why? Because the system of economy, the culture and the mindset of economy permeates everything that we function within. You can go into the same, you know, you can go into, anyway, same examples, but different things. You can go to a car dealership looking like garbage they won't give you the time of day but you probably have more money and will buy it cash at the price they're asking but they still won't recognize it anyway religion and the religious system at the time was basically the sanhedrin the government of the priesthood that controlled who was in and who was out rome exercised power because that's what they had. They had the authority in the land. They had the soldiers, which means power. They, and, and, and business, if you have business, your money is your tool. And money talks. Right? You've heard that expression. Money talks. And the Sanhedrin was the merchant of God, if I can put it that way. Rome was the merchant of power. Business was the merchant of money, and the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin was the merchant of God. They were the ones that had the tap about who God was and how we have to live according to God's pleasure and what that looks like. They were the ones that determined the culture of the religion at the time. I focused with you a couple of weeks ago on how religion in different parts of the world worked with these three areas. 
guilt, shame, and fear. We feel that here. Religion helps us deal with guilt. You have been washed clean. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is guilt. When you're guilty, you're condemned. But the scripture tells us that because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, there is therefore now no condemnation. The guilt has been removed and it has been replaced with innocence. You stand before God because of the work of Christ, innocent. Now this was nothing new. This was being experienced. The Sanhedrin was actually dealing with this. When the priests would come to the altar at the temple and the people would bring their animal sacrifices and they would lay hands on them and transfer their guilt. They were transferring guilt to the animal in a substitutionary format. There was a transaction where my guilt was now passed on to this animal and then the priest would kill the animal because it was accepted as a sacrifice, as the ransom or payment for that person's sin or guilt. And that person now goes home happy because their guilt has been dealt with. We do the same. The Lord comes to us and he says to us, I will die in your stead. I will die in your place. And he actually, on the cross, faithfully obeys, takes on the sin of the world, the guilt of the world, and he dies. His blood is shed. We do that every time we have communion. We remind ourselves that because of his finished work on the cross, we're now in God's presence, innocent. We're no longer judged. We're no longer guilty of the sin that we have inherited and committed. But we live in shame. And the enemy of our soul is very quick to remind us of our shamefulness. And dare I say that we are also very quick to remind each other of our shamefulness. We are very astute in recognizing the shame in others. You don't believe me. You do believe me. Okay? Too afraid to admit it. Too ashamed to admit it. Let's take it a step further. We're also, and we see this now very much more in the West than we had for a long time. Because these three areas of guilt, shame, and fear are the predominant group think or group ego, the group mind of different portions of the world. In the West, we have been predominantly focused because we have advanced as a society. Our focus and how we handle society is based on the rule of law. So we're very attuned to guilt and innocence. Agreed? Do you see that in society? We, have, we, we believe in the police force. We believe in our justice system. We trust our government to make laws that are healthy, that look after society. 
and generally we try to abide by the law. And when we see someone zip across an intersection, cutting through a red light, immediately in our heart we know that's, that person is wrong. Because we are so accustomed in our minds, in our thinking of guilt and innocence. We don't think of that person as, wow, look at the shame he's bringing on his family by crossing this red light. We don't think that way. The East, however, does. Generally, I'm not being very dogmatic here, but I'm saying that there are general cultural expressions. And in the East, it is all based on shame and honor. If you've come from an Eastern country, if you have visited an Eastern country and watched the, the way that they handle themselves, it is not about the individual as much as it is about the group. And the group has this dynamic and this pegging order of honor and shame. If you're good with the group that you belong to, you have honor. Now, if you watch what's happening with the gangs here in the West, it's all about guilt Oh, sorry, it's all about shame and honor. If you're not in the gang in high school, then you're nobody. They can shame you, they can spit on you, they can kick you, they can do all of that. But once you're in the gang, my goodness, you have now received honor. You have now the jacket that you can wear. How many of you remember this, the, the movie The Cross and the Switchblade with uh, Bruce uh, Wil Wilker? David Wilkerson, thank you. Bruce was the other guy that wrote the prayer of Jabez. Okay, David Wilkerson in New York City, Times Square Church. He was dealing with gangs. And if you've watched that movie, you see how the structure of those gangs was all based on shame and honor. If you didn't have the machismo, if I can say that, if you didn't have the manhood to be in that gang, if you were the girl that was being dealt drugs to be part of that gang, you were trying to fit in there because you, were, you knew you were ashamed. You knew your life was upside down. But you were trying to fit in somehow, so you would try to get some honor out of the system of the gang. And in other parts of the world, the whole idea of fear and power. Now, all of this the gospel deals with. We are no longer ashamed. He's not even ashamed to call us brothers. Why? Because he has made us honorable because of his death on the cross. He has made us honorable. We are innocent to stand before God, but we are now family. We belong to the clan. We belong to the family of God and he's adopted us into his family. He's given us honor. When the son that was a, the prodigal son ran away from home and he was now broke, he had lost, lost all his money, he was ashamed. But he knew that maybe I can go back to my father's house and work as a servant there. Because he knew he had no honor. He couldn't even, he had no face. You know that expression? Have no face. He wants to save face. He knew that he couldn't even save face. He was just going to go back to the father's house and work as a servant. But the father sees him. And he brings him in. He puts a robe on him. He puts a ring on him. And he says, my son who was dead has now come back to life. 
he who was lost has now been found. Come, bring the fatted calf. Let's have a celebration to celebrate my son who has now returned. Why? Because he is honored. He has given him innocence. He has now bestowed honor on him. And he gives him the ring. And that ring represents authority to act on behalf of the father in the house. And now that's power. In the midst of all of this, the gospel brings in the power of God because our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in heavenly places. The things that we don't see with our eyes, but we know that have influence over our lives and affect us. So the gospel not only makes us innocent, not only gives us honor and restores us into the family of God, but it gives us power over those hidden things that we have absolutely no control over that creep in the night and they lurk in the darkness and they want to affect us. The gospel is a three-dimensional gospel. It affects us where we're feeling guilty, it makes us innocent. Where we're feeling shame, it restores honor. When we're afraid, it gives us power. All good so far? What does that have to do with Ephesians? Ah, you forgot about Ephesians. Okay. Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul who was sent by Jesus to what group of people? Gentiles. His commission was to take this gospel to the Gentiles. Okay. So... He packs his bags and off he goes. The first thing that he does is go straight north to Antioch, which is in southeast Turkey. Right? Straight north. The land today known as Turkey. He takes the gospel there and the people of that area, uh, of that area receive the gospel. And then he takes on these trips heading west because he knew he eventually would have to end up in Rome. Why? Because Rome represented the kingdom or the empire that ruled that whole region. That whole part of the world. The whole world as they knew it was Rome. There was no other kingdom in, my, in, in at that time that had any power. They had ruled over Egypt. They had ruled over Assyria, over uh, you name it. They had covered it all. So he knew that if he believed the gospel, this gospel had to be preached to the whole earth, which is what Jesus told them. Therefore go, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I have all the power, Jesus said to them in Matthew 28. I possess all authority and I'm giving this to you. Go therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Starting where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So they knew that this gospel 
was not a strictly Jewish message. It was not a message only to Israel. It was a message to the whole world. And they knew that they had to be the agents that wherever they go, they would have to impart innocence to the guilty. And there's a lot of guilty. They would have to empower with honor the ones that are full of shame. And they would have to exercise power to set those who are afraid free. Think about it. Israel was the kingdom of God. They were the covenant people of God. From the time God established Israel as a nation, he had given them which side of this equation? The right side. He had given Israel the sacrifices. He had given Israel so that they would be innocent. He had given Israel, you are my firstborn. He had given them honor. And he had given them power. Just look back over the history of Israel and how the prophets would stand in authority against you name it. Moses would go into the courts of Pharaoh and he would drop his stick and it would eat up the other snakes. It would become a snake and it would eat up the other snake, the snakes. He would stand at the river or at the, the Red Sea and as soon as he would touch it with his staff, the sea would part. That's a lot of power. They were afraid because the Egyptians were coming at them from behind. But he would stand there and he would strike the water. That's power. So God had given Israel honor or innocence, honor and power. So if they were supposed to go out, who were they going to take this to? Jesus said, I've come to preach to the nation of Israel. When the Samaritan says, come and save me, he says to her, no, I am come here for the nation of Israel. But you know the story, I've shared this with you. When the king of Armenia was sick, he wrote a letter to Jesus. He heard, we've heard that you're a healer. Can you come and heal me? This is in the time of Jesus, so in the 30s, AD 30. And he says, can you please come and heal me? And they sent a robe with him because they knew Jesus was a, not a rich man. He didn't have many clothes, so they sent him a, a royal robe. Jesus writes and says, I am not called to come to you right now, but I will send you two of my disciples. And two of them went, just like Thomas went to India. Two of them, Bartholomew, no, Bartholomew and Thaddeus, went to Armenia and took the message of healing and the gospel so they could restore honor to the king that was sick, who was afraid of dying, so they would give him power. And they would not only that, do that, but they would bring to him the gospel that would make him innocent from his guilt. So do you see where I'm going with this? The people of Israel, all through their life, from the time that they were established, they were to be the nation who was the light to the Gentiles. Isaiah wrote about it. Behold, in the darkness there's come a light. For all nations. The Gentiles will walk in your light. All of these prophecies point to the same thing. I'm not here to try to tell you that Israel is bad. That's not my point at all. Israel did amazing things through its history. But Israel also messed up through its history. But the point that I'm trying to make here. Is that Israel was supposed to be the instrument of God. 
in its generations to bring the light of the gospel to the people outside of the covenant. You with me? In other words, they were to be the evangelists to take God's message of this is my firstborn so that they would bring all the other nations into adoption into the family of God. But what did they do? They became exclusive. They had the honor. They had the innocence. Oh, look at those Gentiles. To the point that they would actually pray these prayers. I thank God that I'm a Jew and I thank God that I'm a man. They missed it. They missed it. They missed the fact that they weren't to just thank God that they're Jews, but they would thank God that they're Jews so that they can be instruments of bringing God to the non-Jew. As opposed to putting a fence around the nation's inheritance and saying this is ours. Don't be so quick to judge them. huh? Because isn't that what we do as a church? Not this church, but the church. We put a fence around it. And we say, thank God we're going to heaven in the, blue, in the sweet by and by. We're going to re rejoice with him forever. But look at all those poor suckers that are drowning over there. It, it's, it's funny if it wasn't so sad. So let's look at the book of Ephesians now with a different lens. The lens that helps us see what Paul was talking about when he writes to this group of Gentiles. Where am I here? Can you see that? Okay, that's tiny, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you can see that. No? Yeah. Okay. On the left in the black is the original text. This is BibleGateway.com. I haven't altered this. I haven't done anything to it. Okay? This is the text that is the New American Standard Bible. With me so far? Okay. And it's Ephesians 1 of the New American Standard Bible. And it starts off by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ. Now, I'm going to add a few words to that. So on the right, in the white, is what I have added. In the bold is the extra words. You with me? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the Gentile saints. Now, this came about, this whole text on the right, came about from many conversations with a good friend, Alan Tam. Tam, was it? Alan Tam was with us for many years here in Toronto, him and his wife and his son. Uh, he is originally from Myanmar, they had moved to Canada and work took him to the UK and they moved to the UK a few years ago. Alan passed to be with the Lord. But he was an amazing Bible teacher, Bible student. And we, he and I would have many conversations. One of the things that came out of these conversations was this document where we studied Ephesians together and dissected it to the point that we could now begin to look at it from a little bit of an expanded lens. So Paul is writing to the Ephesians and he says to them, to the Gentiles 
Why is that important? You'll see. You'll see. To the Gentiles who are at Ephesus, I can actually make this a little bit bigger on the right. All right, that you can easily see it a little bit easier. Is that better? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the Gentile saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you, Gentiles, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us Jews with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us Jews in him before the foundation of the world, that we Jews would be holy and blameless before him. Are you with me? It makes sense. He's not talking about the Gentiles having inherited these things. These are the things that in his mind he's writing as us, the Jews. That we Jews would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us Jews to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us Jews in the beloved. In him we Jews have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us Jews. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us Jews the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. In him also we Jews have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we Jews who were the first to hope in Christ. Do you see it? The language is there, but we don't see it. We think he's talking about the church, but he's talking about a very specific nation that has all of these things that he's writing about. He's writing specifically about all of these things having been the benefit that the Jews and the Israelites, the nation of Israel, had inherited. It makes it clear that we Jews were the first to hope in Christ would be to, look back up a little bit, to, the, to that end that we Jews who were the first to hope in Christ, they were the first Christians that understood Christ at a time that Jesus was alive, would be to the praise of his glory. In him, you Gentiles, also after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you Gentiles will sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, I too, having heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you Gentiles and your love for all the saints, Jews and Gentiles, do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you Gentiles in my prayer. That the God of, the of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you Gentiles a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, enlightened 
so that you Gentiles will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance and the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward all of who believe, all us who believe. Remember? Power. Because the fear is overcome by power. These are in accordance with the working of his strength. The strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all did that help separating us Jews and you Gentiles separating it out and spelling it out a little bit allows us to see what Paul is trying to open up in this letter chapter 2 and you Gentiles were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you Gentiles formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air of this spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we Jews too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But God, rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us Jews, back when we were still in Egypt, even when we were dead in our transgressions, has now made us all alive together in Christ. By grace, you Gentiles have been saved. He's made us alive because of his covenant and our aligning with him in the Old Testament. He's made you alive because of Christ and he's made us alive because of Christ. So together we come into this new thing called Christ, the church. All alive together with Christ by, the, by grace you Gentiles have been saved and raised us all up with him and seated us all with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the age to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness <laughs> what did Wanda talk about? Kindness. He might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness to us all who were all his enemies in Christ Jesus. For by grace you Gentiles have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It is the gift of God not as a result of works for we all are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them therefore remember that formerly you the Gentiles in the flesh who were also called who are called uncircumcision by so-called circumcision do you see it here He's saying that we put a fence around ourselves and we stood there proud because we had honor, because we had the covenant and the temple and the uh, law and the law of Moses and all of that. And we would point at you and say, uncircumcised. David did that. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? 
and he kills him with a stone. He did write. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to rewrite the, the history. But there is a problem in the heart where even David is expressing it. Those nations were supposed to be evangelized. And the problem we have is we look at some of the issues and the way that they dealt with their enemies in the Old Testament and we forget that Jesus told us to bless our enemies and love them and we try to live according to the Old Testament model of spiritual warfare in the physical. We try to live that in the physical today. Let me repeat that. That was a big sentence. When we read the Old Testament with the wrong lenses, by thinking we now have honor, we have innocence, we have power, they're outside, they have none of that, and we make ourselves somebody. That's why the scripture says, ought not to think of yourself more highly than you should. When we do that, we take the Old Testament stories and examples which have been given to us as examples and apply them in the wrong way. We apply them in the natural, in the physical, as opposed to in the spiritual. We are to push away the powers and the darkness that controls us and controls our lands, but we are to embrace the people of the land who are walking in the sinfulness that the Old Testament demonstrates. That's a hard pill to swallow. Because some sins are just abhorrible. Some groups function in disgusting sins. And we don't want that to affect us or our children or our next generation. So we want to build defense mechanisms. But beware. Whatever defense mechanism you build will come back and bite you. This posture of being the church, not pointing the finger, not judging the sinner, not judging the sinfulness of society, which it is sinful. There's no question about it. It isn't our role to judge it. It's our role to enlighten it. It's our role to step into it. We won't get dirty. The lepers touched Jesus and were healed. The woman with the issue of blood, which would in the Old Testament have made him defiled, was healed. He touched the body of the dead boy. He was healed. I heard a beautiful sermon the other day about the story of Elisha blown away by that sermon and how the Shunammite woman remember that story there was a woman that welcomed Elisha into her home fed him and he would ask her what do you need what can I do for you you've been so kind to us she says I am I'm good her husband is old she's barren she's never had children they confer and he and his Assistant Jehazi come up with a plan that God has given her a, a, a prophetic word that she's going to have a child in the next year. She's going to be nursing a baby boy in a year. She has the baby boy. Twelve years later, the baby boy is now grown. He's a young teenager. He's gone out with the other workers with his father's crew. He has a headache. He comes home. The father sends him home with a servant. He gets home. The mother looks at him. And before you know it, he's just in her arms. He dies. So she runs to Elisha. Elisha, what have you done? I told you not to fool with me. I was happy without sons and children. Now what's happening? You've not only given me hope, you've crushed me. 
So he goes back to the house, goes to the room that she built for him. The boy is laid there and he lays on top of him, eye to eye, mouth to mouth, hand to hand. Beautiful story. The prophet should not be touching death. But he touches it. Mouth to mouth. He's breathing. Elisha's breathing. He's alive. His breath goes into him. What's he sucking in when they're eye to eye and mouth to mouth? Death. He's taking death, as it, as it were. He's breathing in death. But that won't affect him because he's full of life. So, is it possible that we're so judgmental because we're afraid that that which we're judging has roots in us? Death has no power over Elisha because it has no place in him. It's, he's full of life. He's able to breathe life and even touch death and nothing of hands to hands. Yeah, I know, the body was probably still not decomposing because it was just that same day. But that's not the point. Elisha continues living. He lives a full life. He dies. They wrap up his body and put him in a cave. And the story continues. And there's a funeral. A fight breaks out in the funeral procession. They don't want to get the body harmed. So they see the cave. They take the body, toss him in the cave. And guess who was in that cave? Elisha's body. And what happens? The dead young man comes back to life. Why? Because he was so full of life, his bones were even full of life, death could not harm him in life or in death. Elijah had also raised a dead body. Elisha, Elijah was Elisha's mentor. What did he want? Oh, Elisha, if you can only have a double portion of what you have. Elijah raised one. Elisha raised two. But you know what the beautiful part of it is? According to the Talmud, and the Talmud is the commentary of the rabbis. Remember the Sanhedrin? The rabbis of the Jewish faith have written many commentaries and they're all piled together in what's called the Talmud. In the Talmud, they commentate on the story of Elisha in the cave raising the body of the young man. And it is their belief that that little boy, the son of the Shunammite, who Elisha had raised at the age of 12, had died. And it was his procession. And he was tossed into Elisha's cave, tomb, and he was brought back to life the second time. That is a huge miracle. Raising a second man, if you've already raised one, is a big deal. But to raise the same man twice... I think only Jesus is doing that. He's raised the people that he touched and raised, like Tabitha and the others, and he's going to raise us all in resurrection. But Elisha had a little bit of Christ in him, and he raised that little boy. So when Paul is writing all of this, when Paul is writing this story of the Jews and the Gentiles and how the Jews were supposed to have been the first Let's not live as church. Let's not live the way that Israel lived and missed it. Let's be a different kind of church. 
let's be a different kind of church that is different enough to be like Christ in the midst of our society. Let's not point fingers, not to one another or to ones outside. Let's take on the same way that Jesus took on their guilt, their shame, their dishonor, their fear. He took all of that on when he was on the cross. And he died so that the nations would be saved, so that the sinners would be saved. And he never, ever dishonored the low. The prostitute, everybody else, the people of the Sanhedrin were ready to stone her when she was caught in adultery, the woman that was caught in adultery. He never pointed the finger. He knew what she was doing was wrong, but he knew everybody was wrong. He was the only one that wasn't wrong. And do you think now because we are saved, we're not wrong? We've changed that much that we are now Christ incarnate? We're still sinful. We still make mistakes, willingly sometimes, willfully sometimes. But what gives us the right to point to this group or that group or this individual or that individual and make them feel dishonored? Make them feel ashamed. Make them fear what we have because we like to be in the in crowd. I hope I'm making sense today. I'm really trying to get us to the place where we become a different society, a different culture. The church thinking, acting different. Acting more like Christ. Not being afraid of touching the lepers of our society. And I'm not talking about those with skin disease. I'm talking about the filthy of society. There was a preacher that used to preach here before I came in, Pastor Harry. He was the associate pastor at the Armenian Emmanuel Church. He and I would come together for prayer every Saturday for hours in the early morning hours. He would preach and tell people, as you walk out these doors, you're stepping into your mission field. He would challenge the church and ask them, how would you feel if a drug addict came and sat to the, in the chair next to you? How would you feel if a prostitute came and sat in that other chair? He would challenge the church that way. God opened the door for him. When he left here, he was to plant a church in Scarborough. And it was a church among the prostitutes and the addicts. And he became like a father to them. He would wrap his arms around them. They became family. He shows me pictures of the different things that they've done together. And it's beautiful. Let's be kind not judgmental, gentle, lowly, beautiful to the people that are around us. What would the church be like when we function that way? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus, our model, has demonstrated all of these things to us. And he's given us a model that is easy to follow, but yet difficult to follow. Easy to follow when we put our own desires aside. Very easy to follow when we don't count ourselves as worthy. But if we falsely exalt ourselves, it becomes a very challenging model to follow. So Father, my prayer here today is that we would humble ourselves lest you humble us. We know you're gentle and kind. No matter which way you, we, we go, you're going to love on us. So, Father, I pray for each one of us here today and those online and those that are absent 
that we would become a different society. One that doesn't point the finger, one that loves, one that cares, one that shows your face so that when people look into our eyes, they see your eyes. When they see our mouth open, they see your breath and your words. When they touch our hands, they see healing hands. Just like Elisha when he laid on that body and he brought life to him. We want to be similar to you and to him. So change us, mold us, adjust us. Change our way of thinking about different things that need to be realigned with your purposes. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen. I hope I've stretched you today, a little bit, some maybe a lot, I don't know, but I pray that this week as you go, continue reading Ephesians with this lens now. You may find amazing things that you will discover in the next week. Next week, Lara will be bringing the message. I will be here with you all, but I plan in that afternoon to head out to Turkey for some uh, international meetings with SAT7. And uh, so I'll be there for the annual leadership meetings for SAT7. So I ask for your prayers. It's going to be a very quick in and out trip. I leave on Sunday and I'm back on Saturday. And the following Sunday, the second, which is Palm Sunday, Pastor Steve Otley will be with us. So we have a, a nice roster of different speakers over the next couple of weeks. But meditate on this. I'll come back in three weeks on Easter. I won't be doing this on Easter, but we'll be doing something else. And uh, we'll be celebrating the Easter together on the 9th, the resurrection of Jesus. So may the Lord bless you. May he cause his face to shine on you. You know when a face shines, it has a lot of honor. When the face that has honor shines on another person, it imparts honor. So may the Lord give you honor this week. And may you also shine your face, his face, on those that you touch. May you impart honor to those that you come into relationship with, and you cross paths with. And may the Lord make the way wide before you, that you're not, you know, struggling to make one step at a time throughout the week, that it would be a wonderful week, wonderful few weeks, wonderful life ahead of you. And may he grant you his peace. Even in some of the challenges that I've given you, may he grant you his peace.